0: Okay, well tonight uh, we're going to try to accomplish two things. We're going to talk about, uh, we're going to continue our conversation about Mormonism. And Mormonism is the, the one religion that we're going to look at, or that we are looking at, that falls under the worldview known as polytheism, which means more than one God. And of course, there are other polytheistic faiths in the world, but the reason why we're looking at Mormonism is because we meet Mormons. And this course, again, is about apologetics in the Canadian context. So we could talk about Mormon, or we could talk about polytheistic religions in Africa, but Mormonism is probably the largest polytheistic religion in North America. So that's why we're talking about uh, Mormonism in particular as one of the greatest examples of polytheistic thinking. So um, just in terms of a bit of an overview, okay, so in and around 1820, a fellow by the name of Joseph Smith, Jr., believes that he's visited by an angel, the angel Morani. And that angel tells him that he needs to go to a particular mountain. This is in western New York State. And turn over a stone, and under that stone he finds some gold plates. And he claims to take those gold plates and eventually took him a few years, I believe, but eventually translates them into what's now called the Book of Mormon. And he wouldn't show anybody the plates. So even when he brought them home, they were wrapped in a cloth. Sometimes he let people hold them, like pick them up in the cloth, but he never let anybody see them because he said that the angel told him not to. Now, the content of the Book of Mormon is essentially what he calls, or what Mormons would later call, Restorationist Christianity. So historically in the early 1800s, something was taking place among Protestants called the Second Great Awakening. And the Second Great Awakening was sort of a uh, a desire among Christians from many denominations to sort of return to their primitive Christian roots. So sometimes this is called restorationist Christianity, where they want to basically go back and restore Christianity to its supposed New Testament form, which just as an aside, I find hilarious because there's actually very little in the New Testament to tell us what it even looked like back then. Right? I mean, there's beliefs, but there's actually very little information in the New Testament about like what a church service looked like or what the specific duties of a pastor or deacon were. It talks about the qualifications of these people, but it doesn't really tell us much about what they do. Nevertheless, there was this desire to return to sort of primitive Christianity to, to make the church more like the early church. And Smith grew up in that context, or at least was living in that context. So his his thinking was that he was starting a church that would take the church back to its primitive roots to restore to the people of God, Christianity in its truest form. Now, uh, that might be well-intentioned, but a lot of the stuff that he taught, if it's held up against any historic branch of Christianity, is quite strange and, frankly, kind of weird. So one of the things that Smith taught was that uh, Jesus Christ, after his resurrection, came to North America and ministered to and amongst the um, indigenous peoples of North America the, the pre-columbian cultures so the, the people that were here prior to Christopher Columbus and the Spaniards and so forth arriving and that there was a battle uh, at the time that, that that the original uh that there were a group of people living here that um had worshiped the true and living God, the, the indigenous people, back to the time of Adam, in fact, and that these people had actually started worshiping Christ 200 years before Christ even was born, and that post-resurrection Christ came and continued to minister to them. And a lot of other things. The Garden of Eden was in Missouri. The Mormonism teaches that even today. The Garden of Eden's actually in Missouri. And that um, basically these plates were written in what's called Reformed Egyptian. And they record the words of this angel who was ministering to and, and in and around and among the indigenous peoples, but had to hide them because he was eventually defeated in battle. So they had stayed hidden for many, many centuries. And Smith finds them translates them into English, never lets anybody see them, and the Book of Mormon then becomes the foundation, among other books, for the Mormon faith. So they would believe in the Bible, specifically the King James Version of the Bible, although they believe there's been corruptions added to it. The Book of Mormon, which would be a dominant religious book, the Doctrine and Covenants, Which would include more teachings from Joseph Smith and a book known as The Pearl of Great Price, which is a compilation of his teachings that were published during his life. And I'm not 100% sure on this, but there might even be some of Brigham Young's um, teachings in there as well. So Smith is uh, basically run out of town. He moves his group to Ohio. He's killed by a mob. He's imprisoned. The mob basically breaks in the jail and kills him because they think he's a lunatic and they're concerned about him bringing insurrection into the government and so forth. And then there's a debate about who's supposed to follow him as his successor. So um, the the biggest group follows Brigham Young. And Brigham Young takes the LDS Church west and establishes. Cities and towns and what was known as Utah Territory. it wasn't a state yet in Utah Territory. and out of that come like Salt Lake City. and that's why when you think of Mormonism, you often think of Salt Lake City or Utah. However, there were some in the LDS Church, the Mormon Church, that didn't believe Brigham Young was the rightful successor of Joseph S- Smith Jr. And so there's been a number of breakoff movements especially during the 1800s, out of the original Mormons. So the Church of Jesus Christ is a group. There's one in Windsor on the corner of um, Howard and uh, uh, Tecumseh. And they believe that there was two other men who were supposed to succeed Smith, and so they follow his teachings. And then over the course of the years, there's a, a series of breakoffs. In the late 1800s, because of pressure from the United States government, the Mormon church is forced to stop its polygamy, polygamous teachings. And so they then say, okay, yeah, you can't be polygamous. So even today, some people wrongly believe that Mormons still believe in polygamy. Well, that's true and not true. The, the, the broad, in the broadest strokes, the LDS, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, does not teach polygamy and hasn't for over 100 years. But in reaction to that, there was another breakaway group, and those are called the Fundamentalist Mormons. And so you see the news about these communes, these communities, these towns, where you got guys that are still practicing polygamous marriages, even one in Canada or one or two in Canada out west. Those actually are called the Fundamentalist Mormons. Which are a smaller group that distinguish themselves from the LDS Church. And then there's another breakoff movement, which originally was called the Reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints, which many of you have probably heard of. And they renamed themselves the Community of Christ probably 10, 20 years ago to distance themselves from the Mormons. And they actually are Trinitarian. But they do follow the teachings of the Book of Mormon as well. So they're sort of like, you might say, closer to where we're at, but they're also integrating much of um, Mormon uh, teaching into their theology. They're also egalitarian, meaning that they would, uh, the reorganized church, the community of Christ, would feel comfortable having female bishops or elders or pastors, whereas the LDS church doesn't. The LDS church only ordains men to the office of priest or or elder in the local church, and uh, historically, one of the things that's interesting about the Mormons is that they would they would have been considered a racist group. So up till 1978, they actually forbade uh, black men from uh, holding the office of priest in the church. And um, some of the early statements, which I'll introduce to you, uh, that were made by men like Brigham Young, are are, are not particularly ideological when it comes to issues of race, but quite crass and degrading, in fact. So that's sort of a, an overview of Mormon teaching. I, th- I think I might, we talked a little bit last week about the fact that in Mormonism, the idea is, is that we were, we were all once gods. And God looked out at the gods of which all of us were a part. And he gave us the option of coming to earth, being exposed to sin, in order to overcome and then go back and be greater gods. And when that offer was made, two-thirds of the gods accepted the offer, and one-third of the gods rebelled with Lucifer and were cast out of heaven. And those are now demons. But the rest of us, even though you may not know this, agreed to come here and go through various trials and tribulations in order that we might return and be like God. So as God once was, so we were. And now as, as, as God has become, so we have the opportunity to become like God. So that's kind of an overview. Some of what we talked about last week and a little bit extra there as well. Mormons meet in uh, buildings, they call them temples, and these temples are not open to unbelievers uh, all the time. So there's certain aspects of Mormonism which are secret and sacred, and only Mormons in good standing after meeting a series of requirements can attend these services. And one of the things that takes place in uh, the services of the uh, Mormon church, which the outsider would find kind of odd, is baptisms by proxy. Meaning that within the Mormon church, they believe that baptism is one of the elements that one has to go through in order to return to heaven and become one of the gods again. So let's say you're a Baptist, and you're not a Mormon, and you die, but your son or daughter or cousin or uncle is a Mormon, well, they will be baptized on your behalf. So they believe in baptism on behalf of the dead by proxy. And what's required is that you need to bring genealogical records. This is why the LDS Church has the largest genealogical database in the known world. And in fact, the U.S. government, Canadian government, sends their census records and documents to the LDS church because the LDS church does a better job than the government at keeping track of genealogical records. But they, they have to present uh, a genealogy, kind of stating who you are and how they're related to you, and then they can be baptized on your behalf after you've died, and that will give you the opportunity post-death to become a true Mormon And to inherit eternal life. So they practice uh, baptism uh, for the dead, and this is one of their ordinances. They also engage in things like ritual washings, anointings, endowments, sealings, and all of these things are part of their desire to attain eternal life. Now, um, one temple ordinance, this is very interesting. I think this is distinct from perhaps every other world religion. There may be others that believe this, but I've never heard of it. Is that marriage is actually necessary for exaltation to deity. So unlike most religions where if you want to stay single, it's fine, not a big deal. Or you can get married. Either way, it's fine. There's nothing wrong with being married or being single. According to Orthodox Mormonism, Marriage is necessary because uh, Mormons believe that after death, couples remain married. So once once married, always married. That may be good news for some and bad news for others. (laughs) But you remain married and you produce children. So people who die unmarried will never be able to continue as a family unit in heaven and reproduce spirit children, which would be the desire of Mormons in heaven. And consequently, while you can be single and get to heaven, you can never at- obtain godhood or salvation in the broadest sense of the word. So Mormons actually consider uh, marriage to be kind of an ordinance of sort sorts that you must Make sure happens in order that you can pr- produce spirit children and so forth in heaven. So here's here's just a few quotes from Mormon documents. Uh, this one's from a book called Mormon Doctrine. Uh, marriages performed in temples are called celestial marriages. Celestial marriage is the gate to exaltation, and exaltation consists in the continuation of the family unit into eternity. And by definition, exaltation consists in the continuation of the family unit in eternity. The most important things that any member of the La- Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints ever does in this world are, and just this is just the first one, one, to marry the right person in the right place by the right authority. So ideally in a temple, another Mormon, by the authority of the LDS Church, and then you are positioned for godhood. So if you're single, you'll never have the opportunity to become a god in Mormon theology. So marriage is very, very important. Now, obviously, this is different than what the Apostle Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians 7, in that he opens the door wide open for those that believe they're called to a life of celibacy to embrace that and actually serve God and and suggest that there's some benefits actually attached to that. Only Mormon men can hold what's termed the priesthood, and it is the power and authority to act on behalf of God for the salvation of men. So priesthood is distinct from eldership. So the priesthood is like an exalted office where you have the opportunity to actually bestow salvation through the ordinances of the church upon other people. So this is, this is a pretty uh, a significant uh, movement away from uh, certainly Protestantism. Since its founding, the church taught from basically 1820 to 1978 that african people are inferior spirits who were cursed by god because of their conduct during the pre-earth life and that the mark of their curse was the black s- skin a flat nose this was placed on cain so you know it talks about cain being marked well they basically taught that the mark was dark skin and a flat nose And because of this curse, persons of African descent were not allowed to hold the priesthood until 1978, and then after mounting social pressure, they were finally admitted. So these are shocking quotes and disturbing quotes, but I want to read them for you from some of the uh, early writings of the Mormon church. So this is from Mormon Doctrine. This is actually a 1977 edition. Those who were less valiant in pre-existence are known to us as the Negroes. Such spirits are sent to earth through the lineage of Cain, are denied the priesthood, are not equal with other races, where the receipt of certain spiritual blessings are concerned. This inequality is not of man's origin, it is of the Lord's doing. And then Brigham Young in Journal of Discourses said, you see some classes of the human family that are black, uncouth, uncomely, disagreeable, low in their habits, wild, and seemingly deprived of nearly all the blessings of intelligence that this generation bestowed upon mankind. Cain slew his brother, and the Lord put a mark on him, which is the flat nose and black skin. And it, go, it gets worse. So this is sh- shocking teaching uh, in the Mormon church. And yet, strangely, there's over 500,000 black Americans in the US today that are Mormons. Which is which is which is rather strange to contemplate. So keep in mind that uh, two two examples, racism and polygamy. The Mormon leaders taught polygamy is biblical. Then they got pressure from the government and changed it in and around eighteen ninety. Then they taught for Almost 100 years after that, the black people were inferior. And then based upon societal pressure, they changed it. So it wasn't even like they had a doctrinal powwow and said, you know what, we need to modify our approach here. But rather they modified their doctrine based upon social considerations, which is is frankly not the place to... uh, to take one's doctrine from, but you sort of see how they're trying to adapt. So, James? No, I don't think so. Now, some people might argue, well, you know, there's other Christian groups that treated black people very, very poorly during that period of time as well. I mean, you've got southern slave owners that aren't Mormons. They go to Baptist churches and Presbyterian churches and whatnot. But the critical distinction is that these pronouncements are built into the doctrine and the theology of the Mormon church. They were never built into the doctrine and theology of the Presbyterian church, the Brethren church, the Baptist churches, but rather they were people that had membership in those various denominations that taught or thought this kind of stuff. But the unique thing about Mormonism is that it's inculcated within the doctrines of the church. In terms of the KKK, I don't think there's any connection to Mormonism. I mean, I don't, I don't even know if Mormons would be allowed to be part of that. But um, uniquely uniquely uh, among the Mormon church, uh, founders of the Mormon church, they held the indigenous peoples up here and the blacks down here. Most people held the blacks and the indigenous people down here. So they sort of have a, a little uh, bit of a different history in that regard. Robert? You say that there are, sets of no, there would be many, many, many. I'm not sure how many, but probably dozens, if not more. So LDS Church is the big one. Mormons, they're also called, or Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So you think, basically, they're the ones that come through Joseph Smith Jr., through Brigham Young, and through their prophets up to the present. The Church of Jesus Christ, they agree with Smith, but they don't agree with Brigham Young's appointment, so they break off. So they're kind of the earliest breakaway group. And then you have a series of breakaway groups since then, what are called the Fundamentalist Mormons. They would have broke away in and around 1890. When the church walked away, the LDS church walked away from polygamy. And then I believe the reorganized church, renamed the Community of Christ, would have been in the 1900s where they came out. And I think I shared with many of you that that's where my great uncle and great great grandfather and that ministered. So they were actually in the reorganized church. Well, my great great grandfather was in the LDS church, but the next generation down went to the reorganized church. Uh, they would hold as scripture the Book of Mormon. So the teachings of the Book of Mormon, the the fact that Christ, the belief that Christ came post-resurrection and ministered to uh, indigenous peoples in North America, the belief that the Garden of Eden was in Missouri, I think in Jackson County, Missouri, those kinds of teachings that the Mormon church is the only true and original church that all other churches are inherently flawed Um, baptism as part of salvation baptism by proxy for the dead historically with the exception of the reorganized church a denial of trinitarian theology a denial of the full deity of christ so they would believe that jesus is god in a sense the father is god in a sense the spirit is god in a sense that the Spirit and Jesus both took on corporeal form, but, sorry, that the the Father and Jesus both took on corporeal form, but that there are three distinct gods, just as you and I are distinct gods who are finding our way back to deity. Uh, Yeah, yeah. But all of this this kind of stuff is celebrated differently. Like, there's different... Basically, every fundamental doctrine that biblical Christianity teaches they would differ on or have a different slant or interpretation on. Yeah. So. I think I mentioned to you before, there's actually been some attempt to compare not the, the content, but the origin of Mormonism to Islam because Like Islam, here's the connections. Like Islam, Islam claims to be a continuation of the Abrahamic faith back to the time of Adam. Mormonism claims to be a continuation of the Abrahamic faith back to Adam. Uh, Both Muhammad and Joseph Smith were supposedly men who were restoring true faith, the true faith that had been for a period of time lost. They were restorationists. Both of them uh, were the sole sources of a prophetic encounter with some sort of an angel who over a period of time delivered uh, words to them which were supposed to bring the people of God back to their original foundation. And... um, not Smith in particular, not because this actually happened after his death, but um, both early Mormons and early Muslims uh, committed acts of war in order to propagate their faith and were also subject to acts of war among those who resisted their faith. So the Mormons, you know, there was this big battle out in the territories in the West where the Mormons massacred a bunch of settlers with the help of some Indians um, as part of their desire to sort of maintain their territory and keep it Mormon. So, okay. so the Garden of Eden, we talked about that a little bit. It was originally in Jackson County, Missouri. In fact, remnants of an altar built by Adam himself are, were still in existence during Joseph Smith's day. That's quite a claim in a uh, climate like North America. I mean, it's one thing to dig up stone altars in Israel a couple thousand years after when it's so stinking dry, but it's quite a claim to have something that's six or 7,000 years old in North America that you can still see, you know. But um, here's what it says in Mormon doctrine. The Garden of Eden was located in what is known to us as the land of Zion, an area for which Jackson County, Missouri, is the center place. Our revelations recite, quote, Three years previous to the death of Adam, he called Seth, Enosh, Canaan, Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, and Methuselah, and there bestowed upon them his last blessing. At the great gathering, Adam offered sacrifices on the altar built for the purpose. A remnant of that very altar remains in the spot down through the ages. By the way, someone once said that the the Mormon religion is Americana through and through in that the reason why it might have appealed to so many people at that particular point in history is because it was so Americanized. So the aboriginal peoples were the rightful descendants of the Israelites that the garden of Eden was in North America, that the, that Jesus visited North America post resurrection, that, um, people had been worshiping Christ in North America 200 years before he appeared in Palestine. And, you know, the whole thing is very focused on, uh, America. And, uh, Certainly, with regard to the black question, too, in some ways, it resonated with the prejudices of the day among many of the white settlers. so there, there's a lot there's a lot in it that sort of reeks of its era and its culture at the time. Now, uh, as I mentioned to you, Mormonism has never denied the principle of polygamy. They would be opposed to Uh, polyandry, which would be a woman having multiple husbands, but they were in favor of uh, men having the opportunity to marry multiple women. And as I mentioned, it was practiced until, for about 60 to 80 years, until 1890 when it was outlawed. Um, The LDS Church, the main group of Mormons teach that, plural is stopped because uh, Wilford Woodruff, the president of the church at the time, received a revelation from God and said, we're done with that. So, interestingly, I guess the U.S. president received the same revelation at the same time. So, um, but looking at the teachings of Joseph Smith, I, he says, I have constantly said, No man shall have but one wife at a time unless the Lord directs otherwise. As part of the promised restitution of all things, the Lord revealed the principle of plural marriage to the prophet. That would be Joseph Smith. And then later, after Brigham Young led the saints to the Salt Lake Valley, plural marriage was openly taught and practiced until 1890. At the time, conditions were such that the Lord, by revelation, that's in italics withdrew the command to continue to practice the holy practice will commence again after the second coming of the son of man and the ushering in of the millennium so why there are any women or black people in the mormon church i can't quite figure out now there's also some dietary considerations within the mormon church i suppose the mormons don't value the book of Galatians as much as we might. But Mormon uh, church members must abstain from alcohol, uh, tobacco, coffee, and tea. And this practice is called the word of wisdom. I didn't hear any grunts about alcohol and tobacco, but coffee and tea, I heard some resistance (laughs) among you. So the word of wisdom is... uh, a common title for the re- revelation that counsels Latter-day Saints to maintain good health. So there are even some Olympic athletes that won some awards that are Mormons, and they mention that they have refrained from these things. By the way, as a whole, because Mormonism was founded, uh, it wasn't founded, but because it sort of came came into its own in Utah, there are, many, there are many people who refer to cultural Mormonism. And cultural Mormonism is basically large parts, large populations of people who live in Utah who don't really know or care about the doctrines of the Mormon church. But from a cultural perspective, it's so part of the state, cities they've been raised in that they sort of abide by the cultural connotations of Mormonism, but they don't actually abide by the doctrine of the Mormon church. So there would be many people in in Utah that really aren't practicing Mormons, but they also wouldn't be drinking alcohol or coffee or tea or tobacco as well. Now, uh, interestingly, when it comes to the atonement, Mormons have a different view of atonement. They do believe that the atonement that the, the idea of atonement is tied to the vicarious death of Jesus Christ. However, they teach that the atoning work of Jesus Christ started prior to the crucifixion, which we don't. Okay, We, we ground the atonement in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Not just in the presence of Christ, but in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. But the Mormons taught that Jesus began to suffer all the pains of mankind and actually atone for sins back in the Garden of Gethsemane. And that the pain that he was enduring in the Garden of Gethsemane was actually part of his atonement on behalf of uh, humanity. At the same time, Mormons teach that there are certain sins which Jesus' blood cannot atone for. A, A notable one is murder that Jesus' blood is actually insufficient to atone for murder or other heinous sins. So what does a person do then if they've murdered? Well, that person actually must shed their own blood, literally, on the ground as a sacrifice for their own heinous sins. So here are some quotations from Mormon teaching. This, These are primarily from uh, Brigham Young. Suppose you found your brother in bed with your wife and put a javelin through both of them. You would be justified, and they would atone for their sins. There is not a man or woman who violates the covenants made with their God that will not be required to pay the debt. The blood of Christ will never wipe that out. Your own blood must atone for it. Joseph Smith said, I replied, I was opposed to hanging... Even if a man kills another, I will shoot him or cut off his head, spill his blood on the ground, and the smoke thereof ascend up to God. Bring him young. There are sins that men commit for which they cannot receive forgiveness. If they had their eyes open to see their true condition, they would be perfectly willing to give their blood or have their blood spilt on the ground. And the smoke thereof might ascend to heaven as an offering for their sins, And the smoking incense would atone for their sins. They are transgressors. Who, if they knew, the only condition upon which they can obtain forgiveness would be to beg their brothers to shed their blood. It is true that the blood of the Son of God was shed for sins. Yet man, men can commit sins which it can never remit. So Jesus' blood atones for a measure of sin, but not for heinous sins. you got to shed your own and burn your own or have it burned. And the smoke from that will rise up and uh, save you. So uh, that's sort of an overview of Mormonism. So again, in broad strokes, we were all once spirit beings in heaven. God the Father, God the Son, took on corporeal form. The Holy Spirit didn't. Came back, attained a higher level of godhood made the offer to all spirit beings to come experience sin, salvation, and be baptized, obey the laws, so forth and so on, in order to attain godhood. Two-thirds said we're going to do it. That's us. A third said no. That's the demons. They were cast out with Lucifer. So now we are here trying to attain godhood. Now, I just want to give you, there's many things we could look at in terms of interpretation of scripture, but I I just want to give you one proof text that Mormons would use from the Bible to try to prove that we are gods. And one of the things, just as an aside before I read this, this is found in John 10. One of the things that you will often see in cults or aberrant forms of Christianity is Huge doctrinal distinctives built off of one or two obscure verses. So in our faith, the big doctrines that we have, the ones that are very important to us, we build them off of multiple scriptural passages. And then when we start getting out into scriptures where maybe there's only one scripture that speaks of this or there's a scripture that seems to say something, but there's different opinions in the church. We don't form new denominations or new cardinal verities, key doctrines out of it. But one of the things you'll notice in Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnessism, Christadelphians, and so forth, is they, they'll take like the most obscure verses, ones you've probably read a hundred times and just blew by, and they'll build whole doctrines off of them. So this is one. And this one is found in John 10:34. So, um, actually, John ten thirty five, but I'm going to actually start reading back, to, uh, back from verse 31. This is where Jesus is about to be stoned because people realize he's claiming to be God. The Jews picked up stones again to stone them. And Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from your father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, uh, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, uh, is it not written in your law? I said, you are gods. If you called them gods to whom the word of God came, the scripture cannot be broken. And the conversation continues. So Jesus is basically quoting from an Old Testament passage. We'll look at that in a moment. It's Psalm uh, 82. And he says, well, doesn't God call us gods? So why do you have a problem with me calling myself God?" So he's, he's playing a little bit of a game with them because he's claiming more than that. But Mormons will look at that and say, well, right there, Jesus says that we are gods. So what we need to do then is find the passage that Jesus is quoting from and see if that's what that passage means. Again, we need, we need to make sure Scripture interprets Scripture. So let's go to Psalm 82.6. It's a very short psalm. Now, this context of this psalm is essentially about justice. And in this psalm, we are reminded that certain men have been appointed as judges and rulers. And what's the purpose of judges and rulers? Not to rule heavy-handedly over people, but the original idea of societal structures, judges and rulers, is to maintain order, to represent God's commands, to make sure that renegades don't rule the day, that widows and orphans aren't overlooked, and so forth and so on. So that's what this is about. So it says, uh, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? So what's going on here? This is one of those Psalms where God is ranting against people in positions of authority who are not exercising their authority properly. They're not taking care of people who become victims of injustice or oppression. This is a huge theme in the Old Testament. He says, Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. So all that's going on here is God is referring to judges and rulers as many gods in a sense in that they are supposed to represent him. So if a person could ever be called a god, it would only be in the sense of being a just ruler or a judge who's standing up for the oppressed, the victimized, the widow, and the orphan. But it's pretty hard to take a passage like that and build a whole theology off it, that in fact we literally are gods in the divine sense with eternality attached to us and so forth and so on. But that would be one passage that Mormons would use if they're standing at your door and you open your Bible to try to prove to you that we are gods. Of course, you know, as well as I do, that the Bible does call us sons and daughters of God because of our relationship with Him. But that we're not literally God. And that would violate all kinds of scriptures that talk about one God, not multiple gods. Okay? So any questions or comments then about Mormonism? In some ways, I'll just say this before you ask your questions. Uh, Mormon is, dealing with Mormons is part an apologetic task and it's part a theological task. So in some ways, it's about defending the essence of Christianity, but because they claim to be Christian, it's also about addressing bad theology, just like you might address bad theology with a Roman Catholic or someone else who is Christian in a sense, but holds to certain beliefs that are outside of Scripture. So when you're di- dialoguing with Mormons and and on one hand you can debate and argue about, you know, really where's the gold plates? Where those come about? Why are you changing your doctrines of uh, polygamy, you know, why are you changing your your doctrinal perspectives on the role of black people in the church? You can adre- why you, why are you switching up your prophecies depending on who's leading the church? So You can get into that kind of stuff and sort of poke holes in Mormonism. But because they say at least they affirm this the the uh the uh, authority of scripture you can also just get right into the bible and do theology with them and try to point out some of the flaws there but anyway any any comments or questions then about mormonism okay Kristen. Mm-hmm. yeah so young people are encouraged in the mormon church to take missionary trips I think for a year or two, and that's sort of one of the signs of devotion and commitment to your faith. So you'll see like the the black and white tags. The, the they're usually young people, right, with the back backpacks, and they're kind of well dressed, and they got like elder such and such on. So they've attained the office of elder, and now they're out doing missionary work. And then the idea is that they return and they would get a career or, you know, maybe some of them would work in the church and most of them would just return to a regular vocation and that would be considered like a, an, an honorable thing for them to have given their time to. So like Mitt Romney, right? He was a presidential candidate in the U.S. He, he's a Mormon and he uh, says that he took one of those tri- trips when he was younger as a sign of his devotion to his faith. Yeah, Dela? Yeah, so I think in early Mormonism, there might have been some of the former, but now it would revolve more around the partial shedding of some of your blood and then burning it as a sacrifice, just like in the Old Testament. So the smoke goes up and that the shedding of your blood atones for your sin, if it's a heinous sin, like adultery or murder. Oh, yeah, I don't, I don't know, I, I don't know really anything about the methodology. Yeah. Joy? Okay, well, first of all, their approach would be not to start with doctrine or content. It would be to start with the benefits of the Mormon faith for your family. So if you've seen the literature they would hand out, it's very much like the nice scenes. You want to live a peaceful life. You want to help your marriage. You want to sort of live a good life in the here and now. Oh, and by the way, there's a comparable, much better life in heaven. You can become God and so forth and so on. So, Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, true. Like we have our own hooks, right, to sort of bring people in. So they would heavily emphasize that. And then the way to uh, become a Mormon would be to affirm the teachings of the Mormon church. There's a doctrinal component that Joseph Smith is a prophet, that the Bible, the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine Doctrine and Covenants, the Pearl of Great Price are the words of God, that they are revelatory in nature. They're not just good stuff, but they're actually divine revelation. So you would need to commit yourself to... Following those things, you would need to be baptized. Baptism is considered necessary for salvation, and you'd need to participate in the ordinances of the church as well. So, it, there's also kind of this idea of, well, how high do you really want to go? And, like we talked about, in order to actually become God again, you have to get married. You can't be single. You can get into heaven and be single, but you cannot become a God without being married. So, and, and that marriage needs to take place the right place, the right time, the right person with the right authority. So, I guess so it's works-oriented. I guess what their heart to to uh, they do confess with their mouth a Lord Jesus is just not ours because their Lord Jesus is not the same Lord Jesus that we worship. He's described differently. So for instance, he's not the eternal God. Um, he's not the one who atones once and for all for sin. He, he doesn't have that capability. And he is, in fact, you, but on a higher level. He's he's like a big brother who's already gone to university and can tell you what is required to get through the courses. So this is where we have to be careful. And this your question really has spilled over into other questions when people say, well, I believe in Jesus. Okay, but let's talk about that because what you're saying, Jesus, is what I would say. I believe in Jesus. But is your Jesus my Jesus? Like, are you describing him a certain, the same way? So I think that they would feel comfortable with that kind of language, but you got to you got to ask questions beyond that to make sure that you're not just using the same language, but you're thinking different concepts. Uh, The reorganized church, best as I know, does affirm Trinitarian theology, that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are uh, one in essence, three distinct persons. Interestingly, though, they affirm the full authority of the Book of Mormon. And the Book of Mormon would contradict the scripture in that regard. So I'm not sure how they wade through that. So you could, uh, I mean, Joy, Joy mentioned this to me, I hope she doesn't mind me saying, but she, she went to a funeral or a wedding, yeah, at the reorganized church. I've been to a wedding at the reorganized church. My dad had his second wedding at the reorganized church. I was, I suppose, 17 when that happened. And uh, I don't know if you would notice a difference. Like you'd listen, you'd think, okay, this this sounds Christian in a reorganized church the community of christ so you sort of have to wade in a little deeper to find the differences but on the surface it would it would s- seem very similar although they would be somewhat sectarian like they would they would still see themselves as originalist christians kind of a s- step above uh, others oh yeah No, they would feel comfortable with both. Originally, Mormon, the word Mormon was a derogatory term. And there was a period in history where they didn't like to be called that, but they're actually okay with being called Mormons now. So they would call themselves, they would consider themselves Christian for sure. Yeah. Um, You said that their garden of is in Missouri? Yeah. Is it like a really nice looking place? It's beautiful. You walk around nude. Um, There's a... (laughs) A couple strange-looking trees in the middle, and a lot of snakes. Um, no, it's not like a place that's decorated up like the Garden of Eden. It's just part of the county, but they believe that, that originally was the Garden of Eden. And I mean, we all—you y- know—that we don't actually know where the Garden of Eden is or was, but what we do know is it describes four rivers, and those four rivers are actually in the Middle East, in Mesopotamia. So it's somewhere in and around Iraq. Okay. Any other questions or comments? Ah, yes, Karis. So you start in heaven. You come to earth you experience sin, temptation, trials, you have the opportunity to respond to God's revelation to you. And if you sort of jump through all those hoops, you return to heaven, but now you become a god. So you start off as kind of a spirit being, come to earth, go through all these hoops, and you return to heaven as a god. And in actual fact, on par with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And and whoever you marry here, you marry there. But when you get to heaven, you can actually produce spirit children, right? So you not only have your children here, but you actually produce spirit children, um, you know, into eternity. Yeah. So what were to happen if a Mormon was married to an unbeliever? So that so that's where they would violate that principle. It has to be the right person, the right place, and the right authority. I mean, they would recognize civil marriages, but that would not be the kind of marriage that would position you for godhood. So you would want to try to convert your spouse, obviously. Yeah, In that sense, similar to the rest of Christianity. I mean, if a believer is married to an unbeliever, we recognize the validity of the marriage, but it's, it's not the ideal. There's difficulties attached to that. And we certainly wouldn't promote it or encourage it or marry an unbeliever to a believer. so you are god a a form of god on earth or more accurately you are your this spirit is wrapped in flesh on earth and is becoming a god so it's not like you're a god you're not a god you're a god you're a spirit you come to earth you're wrapped in human form you live your life and you return bodily to heaven and you become a god so we believe that jesus still retains his Uh, incarnate body right, in Christian theology but Mormons believe that the Father also has an incarnate body so both Father and Jesus are are, uh, incarnated in heaven as we speak the Holy Spirit is not the Holy Ghost is not I'm not sure why the Holy Ghost isn't hasn't taken opportunity to be incarnated but it's just two out of the three that are Yeah, I know you said that. (laughs) Well, I can tell you this. One of the things that we should be delighted in is the fact that the Christian church has had a pretty significant influence on many cults, moving them in the direction of biblical Christianity. So this is interesting. The Seventh-day Adventists have, last time I checked, still not been admitted into the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada. The Evangelical Fellowship of Canada still says, and the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada is pretty broad, still says, no, you're, you're not quite there on your understanding of the deity of Christ. But 50 years ago, the Seventh-day Adventists would have had no interest in being part of the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada. So a lot, there there are, it's very difficult, but aberrant groups can be redeemed and, in a sense, become biblical Christians. Sometimes they move farther to the extreme. But there's instances in human history where aberrant groups start off with usually one charismatic founder with a a biblical core, but a lot of other oddities attached. And over time, as they debate, interact with mainstream Christianity, move in that direction. And I, I think that the community of Christ is a classic example of a group that has moved in that direction. I don't know enough about it, present tense, to say in any definitive way, um, you know, how they view all this stuff. I mean, you, you have your, um, observations from one experience. I have my one observation, my dad's second wedding. There was nothing in it that seemed odd to me. Um, but I can say this. The Bible is not special revelation, and special revelation alone in the community of Christ. They still affirm the validity of the Book of Mormon. Maybe it just sits on the shelf and gathers dust. I don't know. Maybe they have crossed the chasm and affirm justification by grace through faith alone. Do they believe in the second coming? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Could be. Yeah. I mean, there are, there are Christian groups that used to teach works-oriented stuff. Well, the, the group you grew up in, Susie, I mean, Susie's the church Susie grew up in is called the Evangelical Mennonite Mission Church. So the conference is the Evangelical Mennonite Mission Conference, but they come out of the old order, the old colony Mennonites, who flat out taught baptismal regeneration and salvation by works, without question. But slowly, within two or three generations, some people started... I don't know if we really feel comfortable with this, and so you got sort of, you got the church now, the church then, but you have these sort of foggy generations in between where you're not sure. Like, does everybody get it or do they not get it? But there's been positive movement to the point they are a gospel preaching, gospel teaching church, right? So the Mennonites as a whole are are a great example of a group that founded in the Reformation, preached the gospel, drifted into partly because of isolationism drifted into works-oriented teachings, and some groups have drifted back into biblical Christianity, which we should be delighted in, but it usually takes a few generations for that to happen. Okay, very good. So just to be clear, you shouldn't call reorganized people Mormons. (laughs) They're actually not, Uh, but they're one of the groups that have broken away from the LDS church. Well I think we'll take our yeah we'll take our break now and then I want to get get into a, uh, a conversation. We're going to get into sort of the final major worldview category. that's theism that's what you've all been waiting for and begin to talk about some of the pluses of theism and then we'll introduce to you some of the theistic religions like Islam and Christianity and so forth. Okay so let's take a break. We'll come back together in 10 minutes or so, 10 minutes. Okay, uh, we're going to talk about theism. The theism is um, the worldview that teaches that there is one God. Now, theism isn't actually a religion; it's a worldview. But there are many religions, our our own included, that is considered theistic. So we are theists even though we're Christians. I say that because Muslims are also theists. Jews are also theists. Okay, So there's other theistic groups out there. So theism basically, in a nutshell, believes that there is one sovereign being. That being is not uh, called necessarily by the same names in, in each of the theistic religions, but there is one fundamental agreement, there's one sovereign being. So we'll just sort of work through this a little bit. Um, Obviously, the question, is there a God, has far-reaching ramifications. It has ramifications for all the big questions that people ask. Who am I? How was I made? What is my purpose? Where am I going? How should I treat other people? All this kind of stuff, all these questions that are asked by people of most worldviews, are tied to your definition of God. Very much so. So therefore, a theist who's a Muslim may answer certain questions about human value or worth, maybe a little differently than a Jew might, or a little differently than a Christian would, but they would all say it's an important question. So just some ideas here. What difference would your views on God make if you were... Born in a slum as opposed to a rich family, believed in God, didn't believe in God. How would you process your suffering, your blessings, depending whether you believe in God or not? Your perception of yourself, I mean, that's hugely influenced by your understanding of God. If you believe there is a God, you're probably going to value in some way humility. Because if you're a God, that means, or if there is a God, that means you're not. And in some way, you're accountable to that God. Mm -hmm. But if you say there is no God, well, then you might think I'm the center of the universe. So that's going to affect my choices, my actions, how I treat people. So the question of, is there a God, is more than just some philosophical thing. It's more than just what we talk about on Tuesday nights at 2.42 because we have nothing better to do. No, there's implications that flow out of our answer to the question, is there a God or isn't there a God? So what I would like to do is I would like to introduce you to, for lack of a better term, what we'll call hints or helps or suggestions or evidences that lead us into the direction of believing that there is one God. I think that each of these hints or suggestions, we should probably shy away from calling them proofs First of all, because proofs are generally associated with a scientific method, and this is not a scientific argument that we're necessarily unpacking. But secondly, because each of them does have debatable elements or flaws. There's no one of these in and of itself that you know locks and seals and forever secures and answers the question, yes, there is one sovereign being. So the point is, is if you just take one of these and say, I'm going to go talk to my atheist friend and I'm going to say, this is why you have to be a theist and they start to poke holes in it, you're like, okay, well, now what do I do? Well, I got another one for you. And you give them two, and they poke holes in that. But when you start to stack them one upon the other, the weight of them all becomes pretty impressive and does press a person to at least seriously consider the belief that there is one sovereign being. And then out of that, you need to consider the theistic religions that are attached to theism. So let's talk about the idea of proof. A lot of times atheists or agnostics will presuppose the validity of the scientific method and they will say to you, prove to me that there is a God. And the unsuspecting Christian then automatically tries to recall their high school biology class or high school chemistry class because most of us are, at best, lay scientists. And we try to conjure up like, proofs that are more along the line of scientific proofs for why there's a God. And then someone says something about amino acids and proteins, and we just go blank because we forgot all that stuff, right? So um, one of the things you might want to consider is that, in fact, to try to prove the existence of God using the scientific method is, is not even a, a valid starting point. For this reason, I'll give you an example. You can't prove God by science in a similar way that you can't prove historical figures like Napoleon by science. You can't. Nor would one ever try to. Like nobody tries to prove the existence of any historical figure by science except for Jesus. Which is very interesting. People don't debate the historicity of Muhammad; they just like him or hate him. People don't debate the historicity of Buddha, for whom there is far little, there's there's far lesser evidence that even existed. But people love to debate the historicity of Jesus, and they try to do it by science. But the problem with this is that you can't prove history using the scientific method because it's not observable it's in the past science your your science only works in the present so because you can't rerun history doesn't mean it isn't true we accept history based upon based upon historical documents for instance eyewitness testimony and much of christianity because it's rooted in history really needs to be approached through a historical method of inquiry rather than a scientific method of inquiry. Now, when I say a historic method of inquiry, we throw in all kinds of categories. Archaeology, that's a historic method of inquiry. Eyewitness testimony, that's a historic method of inquiry. Um, literature, that's a historic method of inquiry. We, we explore and read historical documents. We try to do what's called textual criticism to to judge whether or not they've been changed or modified or they're spurious or they're true. So these are the different streams that we use when we do good history, but we don't use the scientific method to prove the existence of past events. Okay, so if you look at history, this is just one of many things you could talk about. Again, we could talk about archaeology and whatnot. One thing that at least needs to be considered is that when scholars in the area of the origin of religion, people who study the historicity of religion, whether they personally are atheists, agnostics, Muslims, Christians, Jews, whatever, scholars who study the history of religion often say, there wouldn't be complete agreements on this, obviously, but it doesn't seem that ancient human cultures necessarily went from polytheistic to monotheistic, so much as went from monotheistic to polytheistic or pantheistic and so forth and so on. In other words, if you go way back and you look at some of the most ancient historical records among various people groups, monotheism actually is is pretty dominant. This is not something new. It's not something the Jews invented. It's not something Christians invented or Muslims invented. But that some of the most ancient peoples, best as we can tell, and again, this isn't an airtight argument because people can debate it, but it seems best as we can tell that you go far, far back, many people believe there was one God and then later added multiple gods to that belief. Now all that says is that if we're right, there is one God, then it makes sense that if we look at the most ancient documents that you would see, a movement from belief in one God to multiple gods or just a retaining of the belief that there is one God. So you can look at other things, archaeological evidence and so forth and so on, but that's just one under this area of history. Then another argument that's often used is the law of cause and effect. Now, I've written this stuff up on the board here. Hopefully you've been reading it over and thinking about it in between uh, are my teaching tonight. The law of cause and effect, this is basically from Geisler's book on Christian apologetics. I added this little thing because I think it's important. But the law of cause and effect basically goes like this, that things undeniably exist. Now we're going to talk a little bit later about those that deny that things exist there are people who believe that this is all an illusion Uh but there's actually a philosophical reason why that that doesn't hold a lot of weight okay so we'll talk about that later but things undeniably exist now what what are things what are we talking about me, you, the desk, the chair the snow the car things undeniably exist Now, I just want to add to that because when we get into evolutionary discussions, I would say that we also can say that information also governs the viability of all things. That there is nothing that exists that is not governed by what I'm just calling information or data. And this is critical to our analysis of evolutionary theory. Evolutionary theory is not so much weak because we just don't like the idea of having come from monkeys or having originated in some primordial pond. The critical question evolutionists have failed to answer is not even the issue of the missing link. The critical question in our generation is how, where does the information come from, genetic information, for instance, in a human being, how is it put together sequentially to govern life? I mean, if you take one one little bit of it away, it, human beings cease to exist. So what, what's the tool, what's the mechanism that governs the information that's needed for things to exist, whether it be a, a maple tree or a human being? Where does that information come from and who governs that information to make sure it's sequential and unchanged so that life is sustainable? We'll talk about that more, hopefully. But let's just say things undeniably exist. Now, my non-existence is possible. I I intuitively know that I came into existence at a point in time. I know that I didn't always exist. And because I've seen dead bodies, I know that my non-existence is possible. So... All we're saying there is, I know I wasn't always around, and I'm not the cause of myself. I know that for a fact, and so do you. I didn't cause me, and you didn't cause you, because your non-existence is very possible. Now, whatever has the possibility not to exist, which is everything that we see in creation, must, therefore, have been caused to exist by another it, thing, he, she, they. And there cannot possibly be an infinite regress of causes because if you just say, well, the universe is eternal, there's just a, a, a string of effects. There's no initiatory cause. Well, that kind of violates this law, which takes a chunk out of this law and this law, that doesn't really answer the question. Well, how did that which uh, how How do a, uh, an infinite regress of things that must have been caused that have the possibility not to exist always exist without an uncaused cause how is that possible? <laughs> I don't even know if I could say that again <laughs> but I know it was true so therefore there must be an uncaused cause now right away naturalists jump in and say, well, then that violates this law. In other words, well, how can you say that, you know, things, whatever has the possibility not to exist, you know, exists, but then you posit that there's an uncaused cause. Well, because this statement is very specific. It doesn't say whatever exists must be caused. It says whatever has the possibility not to exist is caused so therefore we can say there must be an uncaused cause but that uncaused cause whether it be a he a she an it or a they must have certain characteristics about the cause in order to be the cause so for instance that cause must be unchanging because if that cause changes what if that cause takes a change for the bad It's a deficit in them, and it sets them up to cease to exist. So the uncaused cause, whatever that being or thing or object or power is, must be unchanging. That being must also logically, or that thing, that entity, must be infinite, must be beyond the confines of that which we see, which is finite, must be all-powerful to govern all things, and must be perfect. Not necessarily morally perfect, but must be perfect in its essence in some way so that it can govern and not be subject to the influence of the effects that it has caused. Now, just for the sake of conversation, we could call this being God. We don't have to, but we could call this being God. And if we do, it's interesting that the Christian God meets all these necessary descriptions. That the Christian God is defined, among other things, as unchanging, infinite, all-powerful, and perfect. But the Christian God is more than that. The Christian God is also described as morally perfect, as well as sovereignly perfect, or perfect in his, his being, but then the the next step would be then to say that the Christian God exists because the Christian God meets all the necessary requirements to be the uncaused cause of all that there is. So that's, that's the argument, the classic cause and effect argument for theists. And again, the crucial, because I've. I've used this, and I've heard people say, well, that begs the question. What about the uncaused cause? You just said everything has to be caused. Well, no, no, I didn't. I said every effect that has the possibility not to exist needs an antecedent cause. But if, in fact, there is an effect, like let's say you were an effect, but you were, in fact, unchanging, infinite, all-powerful, and perfect, then you don't need a cause because you are completely and entirely sufficient in and of yourself just to be, but because you you aren't and you know you aren't, there has to be an uncaused cause that caused you through a string of of events okay? does that make sense okay because <laughs> don't ask me to say all that again. <laughs> In some ways, it's simple and it's sort of intuitive, but the language we use to try to summarize this knowledge can sometimes be a little bit come across as a little bit pie in the skyish. So, um, when it comes to evolutionary theory, which is one of our biggest challenges today, one of the things that are that is missing in evolutionary theory. Is transitional forms. So no matter the species, what species you're looking at, whether it's animal, insect, fowl, mammals, you can create a pretty picture and have a string of beings, mammals, let's say, lined up from a dot. a human being and everything in between, but there are leaps, like drastic leaps between each of these images. So you can create a diagram where you have an ape and then a human, and you're like, well, visually they kind of look somewhat similar. I could kind of see, like they have the same number of digits and limbs and face, but you don't just go from ape to human. There's There needs to be a series of gradations in between there. So this is the, the challenge to evolutionary theory is the missing link. But I actually think that the issue of the missing link is a lesser issue in evolutionary theory than this issue. This is another missing link. How do you explain original cause? And of course, there's been a lot of scientific conjecture about Big Bang Theory and so forth, which, interestingly, is not a scientific argument because it deals with history. And science deals with that, that which is testable, repeatable. So you can have a conversation, a good historical conversation about the Big Bang, but it, in fact, is outside the confines of science. It doesn't, theories of the Big Bang don't even fall within the confines of what scientific inquiry is. You can't say I'm doing science 13.6 billion years ago. No, you're doing conjecture. You're drawing implications from data, but you're actually doing more history than science. Nevertheless, Joy. Yeah. it's only given your presuppositions that you bring to it. I mean there's a have just got quads on its with Nobody says that's a transitional form. So but if you're looking for transitional links, you'll see them in all these and all these, different bones. But there should be millions and millions of And they should be they should be within geographical proximity. Oh, yeah. and And they have to be within actually uh, almost near-precise genetic proximity. You can't have a creature go from 90% genetic proximity to 100% proximity. That 10% makes a big difference. In fact, if I change 10% of your uh, DNA right now, you would drop dead. You would just cease to exist. In fact, if even a small fraction of your DNA was, was changed in the process of conception, you just wouldn't even be born. So uh, the, the idea of the missing link has to be established beyond the visual. Well, that kind of looks like that, and that kind of looks like that, so I can see the leap. No, it actually has to be, in, according to modern scientific methods, it actually has to be genetically proven as well, which scientists are not, for the most part, weighing in on. Yeah, well, that's another. That's another interesting um, conversation. Is you can look at evidence, but there is an interpretive step. You look at the evidence and you draw conclusions and you make an interpretation. So, uh, you know, scientists can look at shift in red light and say, "Well, the universe is moving apart." Well, let's say it is. That's true. But it's then an interpretive leap to say it's been moving apart at the same speed for 13.6. I think that's been upgraded to like 14.2 billion years or something like that. Moving apart at the same speed. So if you backtrack the speed of the expansion of the universe, you can actually calculate it back to roughly 14 billion years ago and therefore postulate a Big Bang. Well, there's a whole lot of other potential explanations for the expansion of the universe. In previous scientific theories, which were taught in universities, the theory was the oscillating universe theory, that the universe has infinitely expanded and then been sucked back into a ball of energy and then expanded and sucked back into a ball of energy and then expanded. So that's the oscillating universe theory that infinitely the universe has expanded out over several billions of years and come back and that's just always the way it's been. Modern scientists say no, there's virtually nobody that teaches that anymore. They say there's one big bang roughly 14 billion years ago and it's expanding out. But the, the point being is that you, I could look at the data, you could look at the data. Let's say you get two guys in the same room with all the same smarts, all the same IQ, all the same data, and they could walk out with two different conclusions. Because you're dealing with a measure of conjecture in the interpretive process. But uh, sometimes we humans, perhaps driven by pride, maybe arrogance, maybe because we're paid to do it, um, come across as if we're more sure of our theories than we necessarily are. And there's a lot of gaps that take place between observations and science, because presumably we're all observing the same thing, observations and the conclusions that are drawn as a result of those observations. And theists will draw a certain observation and a naturalist will draw another observation and so forth and so on. So, um, another question is... This is under C. And this is more of like a, a, a provocative question. It's a question of thought. It's a question of maybe common sense, one could say. Does it only make sense to suggest that infinite time and chance equals organized life? One of the crucial aspects to non-theistic worldviews, in particular naturalistic worldviews, is time. So you have to have a lot of time, so much time. In fact, there's no historical records to record that time. There's no data about that time. You have to have so much time for evolutionary theory and mechanisms to come about. So if I said to you, you know, I was walking down my street and I saw an orange cat and before my eyes, it like, it morphed into a dog. Like, yeah, right, what are you even smoking, right? But if I say, well, actually, if you took a cat and let it wander around this neighborhood and breed and interbreed on and on and on for ten billion years, I could kind of see over ten billion years that thing becoming a dog or something like that. And then it's almost like, well, because you can't even contemplate a million years, much less a hundred thousand years okay, well, maybe that makes it more believable than if it just happened as I was watching it. But there's something about this that intuitively doesn't seem to make sense to us when we take the theory and we apply it to lesser uh, objects with less complexity. So let's take this iPhone. Let's say we dismantle this iPhone and i don't know how many components let's just say there's 150 miniature components or mechanisms in this iphone we just pile them on this desk and i mean maybe if we put a fan on it so they're moving around so there's actually some movement some interplay between the objects and then you say how many years or millions of years or hundreds of thousands of years do you think it would take for all the right circumstances to align so that all the parts sort of connected together and voila, we get an iPhone again. And um, just that very simple illustration, which is far less complex than evolutionary theory, you'd probably say, well, if I'm a mathematician, I could probably run like a formula formula on that and say, well, it would take mathematically like however many million, trillion, billion or whatever years But then the common sense man would say, based upon everything that I've observed and know to be true, it's actually impossible. It just would never happen. Now, evolutionary theory goes way beyond that, because it actually says that as every piece links up, it has to function and reproduce in such a way that it can take on another piece and expand. So, in fact, it's not just a bunch of parts, 150 parts, blowing around to create an iPhone, but it's... Multiple combinations of those parts that actually have to take on living form and be sustainable in an environment that sustains that particular kind of form of life for lengthy periods of time, like unimaginable periods of time. The stars have to align, like in an unbelievable way, for every one of these forms of life to exist within an ecosystem to be able to process energy, to feed itself, to have proper amounts of sunlight, oxygen, all this kind of stuff, generation after generation after generation, just to have a functioning iPhone. Now, is it possible, is it mathematically possible that that could happen? Yeah, if you run the string of zeros out far enough, it's mathematically possible. But there's something about it that just doesn't seem very probable. So we, we need to be careful when we, we sort of bind the idea, well, if you just string a whole bunch of years behind it, then maybe it's, maybe that's the way it did come about. And it doesn't even answer this question. Is, who governs the information to make all these various transitional forms of life even possible? Where does this information come from? Okay, um, Dave. Oh, (laughs) the evolution, or that's devolution, or evolution? Depends if you're a Mac. uh... (laughs) I thought you were going to give me the actual mathematical equation. You'd run it in your head. (laughs) Dave's a math teacher, so... So uh, I, I think when we talk to evolutionists, I mean, we, we got to be careful not to be crass um, or disrespectful. But I think evolutionists needs to need to really be pressed, really be pressed hard on issues of data. Where does the information come from? What governs the information? I have a nephew who um, has Down syndrome. <coughs> Down syndrome has significantly affected his life and will until the day he dies. And it's because of one little issue, one little issue in his body. And when you add little bits of information or take away little bits of information from living organisms, you, you end up with problems, not pluses, you end up with minuses, you end up with deficits, you end up with learning problems, social problems, whatever it might be, L- ability to sustain life problems. And yet, according to evolutionary theory, the, whatever this initial being was, an amoeba, protein, whatever, from the zoo to you, from animal to human, Every one of those transitional forms or every one of those forms, be they transitional or not, I mean, ultimately they are transitional, but just every one of those forms had to have all the information necessary to sustain itself and live within an ecosystem or an environment to sustain itself. So, I mean, earth is unique. It has to have water. Water regulates temperature. And water is this very unique compound that's necessary for life and for the regulation of global temperatures. And you change that and things start to die. Things start to turn into deserts or wasteland, right? So even the, the the whole environment, and then that that the earth has to be so far from the sun, you're a little too close, you're suddenly crispy. You know, you move a little too away, you freeze to death. It has to orbit on a certain axis. It has to maintain There's all sorts of systems, like hundreds of thousands of systems and mechanisms within the universe, within our galaxy, within our solar system, within our planet, within our weather patterns, within our bodies, and every other life form's body or form that all has to be just right or the whole house of cards falls apart. And so... The interesting thing about evolutionary theory, it's not so much that it's ridiculous because we're Christians, we believe God created the world, but just in and of itself, even if you're an atheist, it's always amazed me about how much buy-in it gets, because there's a sense in which it's so unbelievable that it takes a whole lot more faith to believe in that than to believe in an uncaused cause. You could say, in fact, that the true naturalist is a person of faith and we are not because of what you have to posit to be true in order to even believe in the system. So you're essentially left with two choices in some ways. Um, I've given a couple of illustrations here, a computer or, or a painting just sort of coming about. Chance or design, what makes more sense, just from a common sense perspective. According to astronomer Fred Hoyle, and I don't even understand half this stuff. I don't know how they come up with these equations, but it's interesting. It would take a blindfolded person making one move per second without resting 1.35 trillion years to solve a Rubik's Cube. I, you know, I, I don't, and I don't know how true that is, but the point is, is it's just illustrating the fact that things normally don't just happen by chance, especially things that involve the kind of complexity we're talking about when we're talking about life as we know it. So life doesn't occur in all of its complexity by chance, I think one could logically conclude. Another one here, the accidental formation of an amino acid into a cell, and each human apparently has a couple hundred thousand of them. Uh, I would think that should be actually quite a bit higher. Maybe that's supposed to read like 200 million or something. All, all of these would take about 293.5 times the number of years suggested for the Earth to form in order to be possible. So you know how, and again, I, I'm not no scientist, but there's an, an, all kinds of proteins, and the proteins have to line up in a certain way to move into the next category, whatever it is, a cell or an acid or whatever. There's, just, there's this great deal of complexity to even a cell. And if you want to read about this a little bit more, I'd recommend a book called um, Darwin's Black Box by Michael J. Behe, B-E-H-E. And he's a, uh, I don't know what his exact title is. He'd be like a molecular biologist or something like that, a chemical biologist. And he he's not a Christian. I believe he's a theist, but he, he describes in great detail the mechanisms in, in sell on, on a cellular level and all the different components that are necessary for a cell to function just by itself and it's it blows your mind about the mechanics you might pop open you know your your 2014 corvette and look under the hood and say man that is quite an engine but a cell is actually more complex and more intricately designed than a lot of mechanical objects that we use on a day-to-day basis and that's just one small element of life as we know it. As biochemists, Fred Hoyle said, as biochemists discover more and more about the awesome complexity of life, it's apparent that its chance of originating by accident are so minute that they can be completely ruled out. Life cannot have risen by chance. And by the way, he, he was a well-known uh, evolutionist, but he's, he's seeing the the, the the difficulties in it. Another argument is order and design. All design implies a designer. So who then designed the complexities of the earth? This is kind of an issue of managing information. Who, back to my statement, who sort of manages the information? In, in a family, okay, there's information and systems that need to be managed. When you go to work, who cooks the food? Who buys the groceries? Who pays the electrical bill? Who shovels the snow and more snow and more snow? Uh, you know, just in a family, there's, there's things to be managed. There's information and processes to be managed. In our church, there's information and processes to be managed. Wouldn't it be nice if we're just preaching, loving on each other, and evangelizing? But we have to do other things. We gotta have communication systems and talk about who's gonna be in charge and how people come into the church. There's, there's management to be done, right? And governmentally and, and the, in, in social structures, there's management to be done. And then in life forms, there's management to be done. There's, there's things to be taken care of. So who, who designs the mechanisms to make the design work? That's a question that needs to be answered, which evolutionary theory, which naturalism doesn't answer. And interestingly, which in fact, pantheism doesn't answer either because they have an impersonal God, not a being, not a thinking contemplative God, just ultimate reality. Well, how does ultimate reality, this Borg-like thing, manage information without elements of personality attached to its character or makeup? How does that happen? So these kind of arguments you can also present to the pantheist, not just the naturalist. Who, does I, who decides the, the exact speed of light? We know what the speed of light is. Well, who decided that that was going to be the speed of light? and that the speed of light was going to be consistent, and that there are mechanisms put in place to make sure the speed of light doesn't change back and forth and throw us off. Who determined the value of gravitational con- constant? Who, de- who decided what the power of gravity was going to be like? I mean, if it was just a little stronger, we might not be able to move, or we might be like really tough because we'd have to have huge muscles to lift our legs, right? Or if it wasn't quite as strong, we'd be floating around you ever have a dream where you're floating it's really weird no. just trying to come back down. Who, who would decide that? Consider water from the myriad examples we could cite of inter- international design. consider the remarkable properties of just plain old water. Water has a high heat specific, uh, has a high specific heat. This means that chemical reactions within the human body will be kept rather stable because there's a lot of water in us, right? If water had a low specific heat, we'd boil over with the least activity. You go for a jog and you come back all bubbly. <laughs> if we raise the temperature of a solution by 10 degrees centigrade, we speed up the reaction by 2. Without this particular property of water, life would hardly be possible. The ocean is the world's thermostat. It, it takes a large loss of heat for water to pass from liquid to ice and for water to become steam. Quite an intake of energy is required. Hence, the ocean is a cushion against the heat of the sun and the freezing blast of the winter. Unless the temperatures of the Earth's surface were modulated or controlled by the ocean and kept within certain limits, there's some fluctuation obviously allowed, life would be either cooled to death or frozen to death. Water is a universal solvent. It dissolves dissolves acids, bases, salts. Chemically, it's relatively inert, providing a medium for reactions without partaking in the reaction. In the bloodstream, it holds in solution the minimum of 64 substances. And any other solvent would be pure sludge. Without the particular properties of water, life as we know it would be impossible. So these, these, are, these, are, these are fascinating observations about the complexity of life. Could it be that it just all just happened by chance? Yeah, that's possible. But it just doesn't seem probable that that amount of information Would just all come together, even if it took an eternity to happen. Darwin actually stated in his chapter, Difficulties with the Theory in His Origin of the Species. To To suppose that the eye, with so many parts all working together, could have been formed by natural selection seems, I freely confess, absurd in the highest degree. And this is like 150 years ago. He knew a whole lot more about the complexity of vision than we do. And the other thing is you think about, just use the eye for instance. It's an organism that allows us to see. How many stages does it have to go through in order to evolve into a functioning eye? And before the first eye was created, what... Mechanism is causing a particular creature, let's say a, a human or a pre-human, to desire sight when that sense has never been experienced or to begin to create an organ through a series of processes that finally has the ability to see. Like, how, how does that, how does that happen? I mean, We're we aware of how many senses, how many senses do human beings have? Five senses, right? Now, apart from the movie, what if there's a sixth sense? Well, I, I can't even conceive of what that would be, or a seventh or an eighth or a ninth sense. I can't conceive of what that sense would be unless I had experienced that sense. So what then would cause my body, having not experienced this sixth sense or seventh sense or eighth sense, to start to adapt and create organs to participate in a sense that I don't even conceptually understand. How does that happen? And where does the information come from? Where does the design work come from, the engineering come from to bring about the organization of that organ, let's say the eye? And then to give us two. So they sort of cross over in such a way that vision and optics and range and all that stuff becomes possible. Like, How does that just happen? It's, just, it's, a, it's a legitimate question to ask of the evolutionist, And it goes back to this idea of information. You have to have information and you have to have management in order to organize this kind of complexity. Another guy says, Organisms appear to have been carefully and artfully designed. So they certainly, they do appear to have an incredible amount of engineering design to find behind them, do they not? They at least appear that way. They appear to have an incredible amount of engineering behind them. What about if the universe is eternal? Now, this argument has been ridiculed. Again, some of these have uh, you know, different amounts of um, weight added to them, but apparently hydrogen is being used up by burning stars. So those that say, and this is not necessarily what an evolutionist would say, because some evolutionists... Most evolutionists now will date the universe to like the 14 billion year mark. But there have been some historically that have said it's eternal. Well, if you think about this, if something is eternal, and within this eternal line of time, which is eternal, there's something in it that's necessary in order for life to be possible. But in this eternal timeline, whatever that thing or object is, is being used up. So it's, here's, here's time, and whatever this thing is, in this case hydrogen, is being used up. Well, if the universe is eternal, then anything that's being used up would actually have been used up infinitely in eternity past. It wouldn't actually be here today if it was eternally, if the universe was eternal, It's absolutely necessary, but it's being burnt up. So this is an an argument that's often called the law of declining hydrogen. And then there's just the moral argument. Um, We tend to try to behave in certain ways. We call this right or wrong or morals. So you might say, yeah, but we live in a relativistic world. People say there is no... Right or wrong. Yeah, but they're even debating the concept of right and wrong, and it still implies some understanding of right and wrong, some conceptual understanding of right and wrong, or that rights and wrongs should be debated. So it's still, even relativism is in fact a moral question. So who determines issues like fairness or equality or justice aside from morality? Why else would we oppose Hitler or any other tyrant? Maybe Hitler was just trying to push forward a certain dimension of his humanity, which, in fact, if we gave him a few million years, would have proven to be advantageous to the human species. Maybe there was something in Hitler's idea of white Aryan suprem- supremacy that, if we just gave the guy a little bit of a break, would have proved to be true. Well, the reason why we opposed Hitler is because there was a moral a series of moral problems with his perspectives and the world over except for a few morons in the middle east agree regardless of their religion that what he was doing needed to be stopped where do these ideas come from like why do people why do courts still minimally lock up axe murderers why does that happen like why don't we lock up grizzly bears that eat other grizzly bears why don't we eat up bass that eat minnows or larger fish that eat bass well why do, why don't we do that why Why are we so inconsistent in our application? Why do we hear of a cannibal and say gross and i'm going to go have a hamburger now and that's not gross. Where does this sense of morality come from where does Where do these moral issues come from now uh, interestingly, one of the main and we've got to wind up here. One of the main responses to that by evolutionists is, is it sort of came about to maintain order within society. In other words, humanity, for instance, has agreed intuitively that certain things are right and wrong in order to maintain societal structures. The problem with that is that in all societies, we see a movement without proper constraints from law to Lawlessness. So we don't see in any human construct a desire to add rules, to add commands, to add things and maybe call them morals that takes other people into consideration. The problem in the human world is that we're always trying to fight with people to convince them that they should look out for their fellow man. The problem is not... We're all sort of thinking of each other and trying to, how could we, what other morals, what other laws could we create so that, you know, my life becomes secondary to the corporate whole? What are some things I could come up with? Let's decide that this is now right because this benefits everybody. This is not what we see. We don't see it in children. Children are, are selfish. They are out for themselves. They steal each other's toys. They push each other around. They have to be civilized. And then we have adults, and they're out for themselves. It's a dog-eat-dog world, right? So we're, we, we have morals that do constrain negative aspects of human behavior. But human beings as a whole buck them. They don't come together and agree on them. Like they, some, some other power, some other source, some other standard has to keep us in check. And when we remove the standard, we remove the source, we don't see the rise of fairness, equality, justice, righteousness. We see the decline of it. We saw this in Rome. We saw it in Greece. We see it in the West. You, you take the, the moral absolute out, be it the Bible, the Quran, uh, the Torah, the Hadiths, whatever religion is out there with their moral code, you take it out and you just say, why don't you guys just sort of agree on what's right and wrong? And everything starts to go downhill. That's how it always happens. I mean, you can study human history, right? So the flaw in thinking, well, morals are just sort of agreed upon by everyone, is that it's just not, that's not the way people work. People tend to buck morals and buck law, and they want to sort of do things their own way, and they don't, by nature, take other people into consideration unless you have an external truth telling them, no, this is right and this is wrong and this is how you have to act. So shape up. Okay. So I know we've sort of got through this stuff rather quickly, but um, let's end there, and we'll look forward to uh, seeing you next week, and hopefully we can talk about this a little bit more.